welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And it's just Kristen and I for a good bit of the show today, but we do have a special guest joining us today. We'll save that as a little bit of a surprise for later on in the show. But we are on the the eve, the weekend eve, I guess you'd say, yeah. of summer, more or less. It's not the official start of summer because that's technically, what, June 21st? It's so late, though. It's like, so late. It doesn't really make sense. Memorial Day should be it. <laughs> Memorial Day, I think, in everyone's heart and mind is truly the <laughs> yeah. beginning of summer. <laughs> so summer reads. Kristen, do you yeah. have any suggestions for, you know, those those quiet Saturday summer afternoons? I, I feel like those come few and far between increasingly as you get older. Yeah. But they do exist. So on on those rare and beautiful occasions where it's warm and you don't want to do anything and you just want to sit on your back porch and read a book, what are you going to be picking up? Yeah, no. So I actually do book of the month. Um, so really? Yeah, it's that subscription box. It's okay. so fun. I had to pause it because I was behind on my, you know, books that I needed to read. But I just got Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmoose. Um, it's so <laughs> cute. It is. I mean, it's kind of a sappy rom com type book. Okay, okay. It's a little obnoxious. I was like, wait, is this actually about chemistry? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. got it. But it's about like a, a chemistry uh, professional who I, I'm like three chapters into this book, Aww. but her journey into becoming kind of a TV talk show and okay. how she uses food science to to get there. It's very interesting. Um, the other one I would suggest is The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. That's a little more hmm. – she's a little more historical-focused, historical fiction. Okay. Um, and that one's on the Great Depression. So that's something I never really learned a ton about in um, in high school and growing up. Like they talk about it and they talk about the, the New Deal and all of that type of stuff. But this kind of goes into the story of a family that – from Texas and how the Dust Bowl really impacted them because – you know, it really did. It yeah. destroyed crops and it was insane. So that's a little heavier. It's also four or 500 pages long. So it's pretty long. Okay. Lessons right. in chemistry is definitely more of a beach read. <laughs> okay. Got it. Yeah. Well, so I'll give two suggestions for one book that I've read and mm-hmm. one book that I haven't. So for the book that I read, I think last summer that I highly recommend is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Ooh. It's a great book about how to prioritize things in your life and get out of the constant like just go 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 mm-hmm. mindset um and i feel like it's a book i honestly need to reread every single year because it's yeah. so easy in today's culture and society to just get into this constant rush and flow of doing 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 um, but one of the things the gold nuggets that i'll share that i love from the book is he talks about figuring out how you actually truly rest and how often in, mm-hmm. in our culture today we get so tired and worn out that then we turn to things like social media or netflix as a way to quote unquote relax, but it doesn't actually restore your soul. Mm. And so he challenges you to figure out like, what are the ways that actually restore you? So great book, great read, easy read, uh, highly recommend it on Audible. It's very entertaining. Um, Then the one book that I am planning for sure on uh, reading within the next couple of weeks is a book called Fast Like a Girl, a woman's guide to using the healing Hold on, let me get the whole title. The, a Woman's Guide to Using the Healing Power of Fasting to Burn Fat, Boost Energy, and Balance Hormones. So it's Ooh. all about how um, fasting is really helpful for your health, but specifically for women when it, it's actually helpful and when it's harmful. Mm. Um, and it's written by uh, Mindy Peltz. So we'll see. Came, came recommended by my sister. So if it's not a good read, I'll blame her. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I trust her. I trust her. Yeah. So I think that'll be interesting. 
So I feel like that that gives a good mix of like self help and yeah. fiction. Well, and also just and history. I, yeah, history too. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's something there for everyone. For everyone. The fa- I'm totally going to check that fasting one out because I feel like I it's been fascinated. popping up a lot more. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, the whole fasting culture, like you said, yeah, it's definitely popping up. It's become very popular. Yeah. And so I'm interested in actually understanding the science of it. Uh, I'm also, like, very judgmental about that just because I sure. do work out. But, yes. like, so I'm always in my head not able to do it. But Jay Richards grounded me on Monday and was like, <laughs> no. That that would be great for you to try. So okay. I am feeling nudged to try the fasting. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, um, we'll see. I'm going to read the book. And then I guess Report the next back. step is actually <laughs> trying the fasting part. We'll see how yeah. that goes. Uh, but we will put for any of our listeners that have suggestions for yeah. summer reads, I'm going to throw up a story on Instagram. So we want to hear from you all. What are your suggestions for summer reads? And maybe we'll even do a piece on the Daily Signal. We'll see with, like, your suggestions. Yeah, that would be TBD. super fun. But we might do that. All right. Well, we have a fun show planned today. Lots to cover from a lot of different angles. <laughs> yes. Kristen, go ahead. Let us know what we have queued up. Yep. Up on today's Problematic Women, we break down what is happening with the de- debate over the national debt and why Congress and the president can't seem to agree on raising the debt limit. Plus, some climate activists poured black vegetable charcoal into the Trevi Fountain in Rome. We explain why. Also on today's show, we are diving into the latest on the war in the Ukraine. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. As of this podcast, we have seven days until the X date. That is what many are referring to as the date that the U.S. Treasury says they will no longer have enough money to pay their bills on time, which pretty scary. Mm -hmm. That's the U.S. Treasury. A lot of institutions rely on it. A lot of countries rely on it. Um, But this problem didn't come out of nowhere. We hit the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling back in January, actually January 19th to be specific. And since then, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been trying to negotiate a path forward. But how has the government stayed afloat for the last five months? It's actually kind of crazy. And this is where my econ brain just kind of lights up because okay, I just go. don't understand. I mean, I do understand, <laughs> but it's it would never work in a real household. Um, so their first saving grace was tax season. So back in March and April, we all went through the process of, you know, filing our taxes, paying what we owed or, mm-hmm. you know, receiving what we overpaid for the last year. And that was kind of Secretary Yellen's point of let's really analyze the situation and figure out when are we truly out of money? Because at this point, everyone will have paid what they owe us. We'll know exactly how much money we have left in the, mm. in the bank, yeah. capital T, capital B. Um, and that's where they got this June 1st deadline um, as when their stream of income ends. Um, a few factors kind of also are sign- – not signs of hope, but for her, at least signs of hope. California, due to weather conditions, delayed when their taxes were due. I believe it's in the fall at some point. So they have a little bit more. I mean, California is a huge state. So we'll see how much more money that brings in. But at this point, we're kind of done for the year. Debt ceiling has been met. There really needs to be a solution. And so a few solutions that are being discussed is actually just raising the debt ceiling itself. That's something 
the left is really pushing. Mm -hmm. And while it may seem like a simple solution, Speaker McCarthy has made it clear that we are at this point because of reckless spending. Yep. They're, I mean, very obvious. We are sending tons of money overseas. We, you know, dealt with a lot of fraud during the COVID-19 pandemic that we are trying now to get a little bit more of a handle on. Mm -hmm. But we have reached that 31.4 trillion. Imagine having a bill that high and a budget that high, frankly. I can't. Yeah, there's a lot you can do. But he has made it clear that from the conservative perspective, we will only be raising the debt ceiling if there are substantial cuts in spending over the next few years. Mm-hmm. I think that is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he even went as far as to say for the last 21 straight years, we've spent more than we brought in and no household would live this way. I think that's totally fair. And actually, the journal reported an even scarier reality, which is that for every $4 the government spends, $1 of that is financed with debt. And so- Jeez. It's scary in in the sense, too, that the U.S. has had a proven track record, um, like the Lannisters from, from my Game of Thrones fans, that we <laughs> always pay our debts. <laughs> always, always, always. Making the way in which the Treasury borrows money when we do need to borrow money essentially riskless. And what I mean by that is they basically are able to borrow money when they've run out of tax dollars to use by selling these securities um, in the form of treasury bonds, in the form of treasury bills. And that actually makes up a lot of retirement accounts. And it Mm -hmm. makes for a really riskless investment for those just starting to get more comfortable with trading stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. A lot of banks use treasury bonds and bills. So it's almost the backbone of our our economic infrastructure hmm. that we are are kind of getting a little bit more worried about because again if the treasury borrows and can't pay back their debts we're we're in some trouble here again this has been a scare tactic that a lot of people have used to just you know raise the darn thing we're yeah. you know here 7 days ahead of our our true x date and um there's not really a solution but i will say that you know, McCarthy has really done some put some groundwork on the messaging around this and some groundwork on like, how do we make this a feasible solution? So it's not us just saying we're going to raise the debt ceiling. If you cut spending, he has really gained a ton of support. And it's actually been reflected in a recent CNN poll that showed 60% of Americans were in favor of raising the debt ceiling if we also paired that with cuts in spending. Which is huge. That's a really big deal that 60%, 60 out of every 100 Americans say, yes, we want the debt ceiling raised, but we only want it raised if the federal government agrees to stop spending so much money. That's really telling. I mean, it's intuitive too, right? Like there's so much at play here and we are still spending so recklessly as an institution. I remember, or institution, sorry, as a country. (laughs) Um, And they do this a lot. I mean, we've had a few debt ceiling fights. I think it was 2013 was the most recent. In 2021, we, we just simply raised the debt ceiling with really not a ton of stipulations because you know, the left wanted to just raise spending. And Mm -hmm. at the time, maybe that made sense. But I think that McCarthy bringing attention to the fact that we can't just keep increasing it like our debt, we can't, this is never going to be a too big to fail Mm -hmm. situation. And we are really risking our world power and our role on the economic world stage by just, you know, saying, all right, cool, I'm going to increase my spending this year. It's like the same as me, you know, going to my TJ Maxx credit card and asking for 400 more dollars and not paying them back ever. It's just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And I think uh, we, 
we have escaped so many times and we've continued printing money and we're living, I think, a, a lot of lawmakers, the White House are sort of living in this bubble thinking it's never going to pop and we can just sort of keep pushing the envelope further and further and further on spending money, on raising the debt ceiling and never actually paying our debts. Well, any economist will tell you, no, eventually things catch up with you. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. You have to, at some point, there has to be a a reduction in in out-of-control spending. There has to be a balancing of the budget. We have not had a balanced budget in a long time. A balanced budget just means uh, you spend what comes in the door. (laughs) You don't exceed that. (laughs) And we've been exceeding it. (laughs) Wild concept. But we all do it. We all do it. And you get in trouble Mm -hmm. with your bank, your family. When you don't do it, you get a bad credit score. You can't buy a house. You can't buy a car. Mm -hmm. So personally, we all understand how this works. The federal government somehow does not seem to understand how this works. Yeah. And it's crazy because when you look at it, you have a lot of solutions that are being proposed. For instance, there's one that says, let's just make a coin that's, you know, a couple trillion dollars worth and and give that to the Treasury so we can pay for our debt. But that's not systematically solving the problem. Mm-hmm. We are still, it's honestly gaslighting the taxpayer dollar and gaslighting all of our partners around the world saying, oh, no, we got a handle on this debt because we, you know, made this fiat <laughs> currency and now we're we're fine. It's That's not what's wow. happening here. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's Another crazy. solution progressive lawmakers are are kind of pushing is having President Biden use Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, which states the validity of public debt of the U.S. authorized by law shall not be questioned. And I think it's really important. E.J. Antony and Richard Stern have both talked about this. Um, That amendment specifically was created after the Civil War when we had two different debts. We had the Union and the Confederacy debt. Mm-hmm. And all this does in context, again, we're, we're a country that loves to take things out of context. Yep. All this does is say the Union debt shall not be questioned. Confederacy, we're figuring it out. We're kind of like, you know, we just had a Civil War. We're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these two solutions are not necessarily sustainable. They're not solving the actual problem, which again is the reckless spending. And honestly, it just kind of puts us, our country down the road into a worse position. Um, I actually, one last thing on this, spoke with Rep. Arrington, Representative Arrington from Texas, and his big spiel on the debt ceiling fight was no one's representing my grandkids. No one's mm. representing their kids. Like, why can we as lawmakers or we in D.C. as American citizens be OK with the fact that we're just kind of, you know, lifting and pushing back this yeah. debt and this actual issue? I think it's really brave of McCarthy to say, no, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire Biden administration and, and those on the left. We're not going to you know, continue to prolong this solution and problem solving process. We're going to make it painful, kind of like what we saw when they were debating who should be the Speaker of the House. We're going to make this as painful as we need to in order to ensure that we have a solution that not only combats the issue at hand, which is handling that debt ceiling, but also ensures that we're not just, you know, for the next 21 years doing the same thing, the status quo solution that we have been. So Exactly. And it's been encouraging to see that Republicans have been able, they passed through the House, a bill that would raise the debt ceiling and cut spending. They have said, we have a plan. They released their plan. They came out with their plan. And the only plan we've heard from the White House is just, no, 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 just just raise the 
the debt ceiling, and which now we've seen the majority, 60% of Americans, don't agree with that. They want to see those spending cuts. So like you said, Kristen, we are kind of at the 11th hour. The Treasury <laughs> Secretary says we have about a week to figure this out. Uh, or we're putting the U.S. in, in a challenging position. It, it's not an impossible one. Lawmakers have repeated, McCarthy's repeated, we're, we're not defaulting. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not an option on the table. Uh, we could, if they can't reach an agreement, we could be looking at a government shutdown. Yeah. That would be a wild ride, but yeah, no, you've was, been through that, Kristen. Yeah, so. I was just going to say, living through that. And that's the other thing, kind of what I was saying earlier, the scare tactic. Yeah. It's not the end of the world no. if the government needs to shut down for a minute so we can figure it out. The sun you know? will still rise. And the big thing is, you know, a lot of people that are trying to push for a simple increase in the limit are like, well, what about Social Security? What about Medicaid? What about all these people that are relying on the government to pay them for what they need? Mm-hmm. They, look at what we did during the pandemic. People weren't allowed to, you know, kick others out. They still can't kick people out in some cases of their homes that they're renting because of the pandemic assistance. There's things that can be done to ensure that those most vulnerable populations are protected. And to your point, as someone when I was in the Trump administration, I think it was, what, a month or two that went on with the, the continued resolution um, debate. And we made it by, you know, like there were organizations that provided us with meals, not that I needed it, luckily, thank the Lord. But there are things that can be done to ensure that isn't as painful as what is being pushed, the rhetoric and the scare tactics that are being pushed with the quote unquote default that we're facing. It's we're not facing default. We're simply facing an uncomfortable conversation. And unfortunately, the left is doing what they do best. And that is gaslighting taxpayer payers and American citizens into thinking that, you know, the the situation is more dire than it is. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Wow. A lot there. And we're going to continue following this because a lot could happen in the next week. (laughs) But stay tuned because up next, we're bringing a special guest on to talk a little bit about what is happening in Ukraine. It's been over a year since the war in Ukraine started, and we want to get a breakdown. What's happening? Where do things stand right now? And what are some of those latest developments. But first, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and you're searching for other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than Students Over Systems. It's a new podcast product of the Independent Women's Forum. Every other Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, host Ginny Gentles is joined by parents and policymakers to discuss school choice and parental rights. Students Over Systems charts a path to a brighter future by featuring the voices of the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And if you cannot wait for that next episode or you just want to catch up on some of the old episodes, you can listen to previous episodes at iwf.org or just search for Students Over Systems Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Here with us today to help us unpack some of the recent developments with the war in Ukraine is Victoria Coates, a senior research fellow in international affairs and national security at the Heritage Foundation. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. So this is such an important topic, and it's one that, you know, of course, I feel like it is just the backdrop of the news really for the past over a year now. So often we're hearing updates, what's going on with the war, 
in in Ukraine and you know how how is Russia proceeding how is America involved so if you would just kind of give us an update February marked a year since Russia invaded Ukraine are you surprised that this war is still going on Oh, I think everyone's pretty much amazed. And we've just marked the 15-month point this week. So we're now a year and a quarter. You know, we are are taking a big bite out of that second year here time-wise into this this war. And what was most disturbing to me this week were reports that the administration is contemplating a quote-unquote solution for Ukraine that would be... uh, a kind of a frozen conflict like the Korean Peninsula, where you'd have a hmm. North Korea-type area that would be a no-go zone, oh, wow. and then the the South Korea-type area, which would be a Western-aligned uh, capitalist uh, democratic country. And, you know, while South Korea has been a big success, I don't know that we want to recreate the North Korea model. So, no. you know, my argument from the beginning has been that we we needed to get this conflict into a condition where we could actually win it, not not drag into a stalemate. Yeah, that sounds like a huge compromise that would have a lot of losers. Yeah. No, and it's interesting because it seems like, you know, we just hit a point, one of the latest developments in, in this war um, has happened in the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. And, you know, Russia and Ukraine have been fighting over this city for, I think it was nine months. Um, Russia, and Russia has claimed now that it has taken the city. So kind of to your point, is that, you know, where the line in the sand is going to going to be? And, and I mean, it's not exactly a strategic location. It's kind of just in the middle of the country. Um, but why has so much fighting centered around this city when it's not necessarily a strategic location? And what's your take on will this be a line in the sand, kind of like what we're seeing in the Korean pl- peninsula? Yeah, Bakhmut is is a very interesting case and kind of a, a example of the through the looking glass nature of this war. Uh, for whatever reason, Prigozhin, who's the head of the Russian head of the Wagner Group, which is their paramilitary group, uh, just made Bakhmud one of his key strategic goals. But as you say, it's not really all that important of a location. If the Ukrainians retain the high ground around Bakhmud, you know, then they they control access to this whatever's left of the city, which doesn't sound like it's much. So you know, the Russians have spent you know, however many thousands of lives, however much ammunition and and material, taking what is essentially, you know, a a kind of a Pyrrhic victory uh, if if they do indeed control the city now. But even that's not clear. Uh, And so the fact that we're even allowing them to treat this as some kind of a a victory to their domestic press is, you know, is a real mistake. I think, Mm. you know, Zelensky probably had it right when he was talking about it in Hiroshima last week that, you know, all you've got there are a bunch of dead Russians, uh, you know, that 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 would be the way to frame it and, and, you know, point out that if 15 months later, all they have to show for it is Bakhmud, you know, this, this is a failure for the Russians. Mm -hmm. So then I'm looping back to kind of what you were saying about possible coming to some sort of agreement or settlement? I mean, given now the reports that we're hearing about Bakhmut, how should the U.S. be thinking about support for Ukraine? Have we given the support that we should have given? Have we given too much? Has it been the right kind of support? 
It's really, really frustrating because we're now over $110 billion uh, committed in both economic and military support uh, for Ukraine. And so this is a pretty significant price tag for the United States. And the, the first point I'd make is, is it is really shameful that the administration has allowed the two largest economies in Europe, being France and Germany, to really take a back seat on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody was just delighted 10 days ago when the Germans announced they were pledging $3 billion in support. And, oh, that meant that the, the Europeans were coming on board and starting to soldier their burden. Well, no, not if it's less than 3% of what the American taxpayer has has mm-hmm. shouldered. So I think that enabling of, of European dependency, especially as some of the smaller countries are stepping up and doing more of their than their fair share, uh, that, that that really points out how how uh, how much the French and the Germans have shirked uh, their responsibility for what is essentially a European war in the end. So that would be the first point. You know, the second is we're looking at what we're giving them. You know, the president, after insisting for months that we were not going to give them the F-16 fighters, now announced in Hiroshima that we were going to bring a bunch of of Ukrainian pilots over and train them on the F-16. He stopped shy of saying he was actually going to provide the jets. There are some other places I guess they could come from. But again, it's this incremental kind of hand-wringing over, you know, what is escalatory, what isn't escalatory. You know, the last time I looked, the person who was escalating was Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I think I think that has been a real drawback to the Ukrainian impulse, which I think most Americans strongly support to win this war, you know, and take their country back, uh, you know, and, and prevent Russia from doing this again. So, you know, I we have, you know, here at Heritage in our family, you know, we have J.V. Venable, who's been writing on the F-16s that he really doesn't think they're going to be the game changer. Mm. Uh, Everyone assumes that there are some reasons you might want to do it in terms of long term arming of Ukraine. But we're in a shooting war right now. Mm. That shouldn't be our priority. Mm. Wow. Yeah, no. And I guess things totally change in the landscape of the war. Um, we're hearing a lot about the spring offensive. Is there a difference in what we've seen um, st- strategy-wise from either side? Um, and what exactly, like, what does the spring offensive entail? <laughs> well, the, the short answer is we don't know because mm-hmm. the Ukrainians have rightly gotten sick of having their uh, military secrets leaked to the American press by the administration, which does that for various reasons of messaging, but which it has proven pretty damaging to the war efforts. So they don't tell us anymore what they're mm-hmm. going to do. Uh, you know, I'm a little concerned that we're on the on the verge of, of June and the spring offensive has not yet materialized, but that yeah. doesn't mean it won't. Uh, and, you know, if, if they feel that some of the other uh, systems that, that we've provided and our allies have provided are now in place, they're fully trained on them, you know, we could see uh, a major movement in in coming days to start to retake additional pockets of territory, you know, in the east of the country and really shore up the defenses of Kiev. Hmm. Well, and given, like you said, it, it is a little uh, interesting that we have not seen the spring offensive launched yet when June's around the corner. But let's say it, it is launched in the next couple of weeks. How critical will the coming weeks and maybe you know next three months be for the war if if the spring offensive 
you know, worst case, best case scenario, what are we looking at? How much longer could this drag on? Well, I think what we don't want is a repeat of last year where, you know, the Ukrainians were making significant gains over the summer months uh, and there was a real slow walk of of support for them. Mm. If, you know, the administration is serious, as the president said in Hiroshima, you know, we have Ukraine's back, we're in this for as long as it takes, then they owe the American people a, a clear plan. Uh, you know, the fact that we're sitting here 15 months into this thing with no idea, you know, what kind of the end state is or where we're going to go, except for a vague signal that we may freeze the conflict, that's really not desirable. And if we get into the fall and they're still grinding on, and then we're into the U.S. election, elective, blah, election cycle, uh, you know, that's that's not good for anyone. And, and the other thing I, I thought your listeners might be interested in is is late last week, uh, there was a news dump that the Pentagon had suddenly found $3 billion in an accounting error that was in the Ukraine account that allows them to continue support for the war over the summer without going to Congress. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I guess they were going through the sofa cushions and they found $3 billion. You know, let that sink in. You know, for the Pentagon, $3 billion is a rounding error in one account. So, you know, this notion that that the defense budget is some kind of sacred cow that we just need to indiscriminately fatten is is it should be an affront to the American taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we so the other thing this does is it allows the administration to kick the can on asking for a supplemental funding from the Congress basically to the end of September, which is the end of the fiscal year. And that's not no accident because at the end of the fiscal year, there is always a flurry of uh, – sort of must-pass appropriations vehicles uh, that are done at the last minute in a, you know, back smoke-filled room, and they'll stuff Ukraine into one of those. And once again, the Congress, the elected representatives of the American people, will be given no opportunity to debate on the war, to ask questions of the administration on the war, and they're just going to jam more of our money into it with no accountability. Mm. Wow. Well, Victoria, we really appreciate your expertise on this. It's obviously a situation we're all watching closely and and watching how is how is America, how is Europe responding. But we truly appreciate your expertise. Happy to do it anytime, guys. Well, for anyone listening who wants to hear more from Victoria Coates, you can check out her work, her research, both at the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation website, heritage.org, and dive a little bit deeper into the the Ukraine issue, into the war. Uh, but, wow, man, there's a lot there. We're going to keep, keep you all updated on that as things continue to unfold. But speaking of Europe in a very different section of Europe, uh, or a very different tone, um, recently there was a, an interesting situation in Rome at the Trevi Fountain with some climate activists. So I was actually in Rome on vacation two weeks ago, and I visited the Trevi Fountain. It's beautiful. It was my first time ever seeing it. It's a lot bigger in person than I thought it would be. But it's absolutely gorgeous. It was uh, completed in 1762, and it stands at the intersection of three really key roads in Rome. And it is 
I mean, when I say it's a tourist site, mm-hmm. that's almost an understatement. So, you know, you see it in movies like, you know, the Hillary Duff movie. Yes. Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> Lizzie Love McGuire. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lizzie McGuire movie. And, you know, there's sort of a, a few people milling around it and you walk up and you toss your coin in the fountain and it's romantic. Well, in reality, it's like you're shoulder to shoulder with everyone <laughs> and you're like, how high can I possibly reach my iPhone up in order to take this picture without, uh, anyone, being without the- anyone being in the background? <laughs> and so my friend and I, we saw it and then we went to dinner and we came back and it was probably like 10 o'clock at night. And we were like, oh, surely, like, the crowd will have thinned by now. No, just as crowded, just as crowded at 10 o'clock at night, which in fairness, Rome, people don't go to dinner there until 8 (laughs) o'clock at night, which I loved. But um, so nightlife is, it's not crazy. It's just common. It's normal. Everyone's out at night. But it, it is literally gets, I would say, hundreds of thousands of visitors probably every single day. It's this beautiful, stunning landmark, iconic and uh, some climate activists decided that they were going to use this beautiful, stunning historical landmark as the spot for their demonstration to protest fossil fuels. So um, it was about one week ago. There were there was a group of eight climate activists that hopped into the Trevi Fountain. First off, that's a huge no no. No one mm-hmm. is allowed to swim. I mean, I think even if you stick your hand in, you can get in major major trouble. Uh, so they hop in, they hold up banners and they start dumping black vegetable charcoal, liquid black vegetable charcoal into the fountain. So it'd be beautiful, clear water. And now there's all this black muck in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, their whole point, their objective was they wanted to, um, raise concerns over the use of fossil fuels and specifically government subsidies to fossil fuels. So I want to give you a little bit, though, just of a sense of kind of what it sounded like from, because remember, there's thousands of tourists there watching this unfold. This is what the crowd sounded like as they, these eight climate activists, were dumping this black muck into the Trevi Fountain. So obviously people, they were upset. They were booing. I think one, I do not endorse this, but I, one a tourist looked like, I think he even like slapped one mm. of the climate activists. It it was a whole scene went viral on social media, videos of it. No one was happy. No one was happy no. <laughs> that this happened. Uh, and and again, what, what they were protesting before police literally dragged them out of the fountain um, was dependence on fossil fuels. So uh, Italy has had unusual amounts of rain. It was actually while I was there, we were navigating. Like I actually took my rain boots with me. We had umbrellas almost all the time with us because there is an unusual amount of rain this time of year. And unfortunately, in North Italy, there have been really extreme floods that have killed eight people. Mm. And these climate activists are blaming fossil fuels as a part of the reason for flooding. And so they they defaced this historic fountain to call for an end to fossil fuel subsidies. Subsidies, of course, this is this is government money given to an industry to keep costs low, um, like keeping the cost of fossil fuels low. So let's talk a little bit, though, about fossil fuels, what fossil fuels are. But before before we do that, Kristen, I want to get your thoughts like when when you saw this, what 
What did you think? What were your first thoughts? Yeah, well, so I think it's – I've been to the Trevi Fountain, too. I had my Lizzie McGuire moment. Didn't, totally. you know, find love of my life there. It's oh, fine. I'm shame. over it. <laughs> but um, I think what's really interesting is if you kind of – go back and look at the Trevi Fountain itself. It's a symbol of the changing tides of the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, And just kind of interesting little tidbit to point out because, yeah, the tides are changing. And they. I wonder if they knew that when they, you know, decided to, like, plunge into this and, Mm -hmm. you know, destroy it. Or not destroy it, but it's just... Certainly deface it. Deface it. It's, It's very sad, too, that it came to that. Again, having been there, it's beautiful. It's one of those things that I mean, even living in DC, when I see the Capitol building or the Washington Monument, Never you just have to take a second. Yeah. You know, and Never really appreciate it. And I think that's what's so disturbing about what a lot of climate activists are doing is they will take the beauty of the world and destroy it, which is honestly, I'm not sure if they're doing that as a symbol of, you know, what they believe climate change is doing. I think but, they are, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess My hot take on this is (laughs) we don't – this isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. Use your words. We've been taught that since we were, what, two? Yep. And, you know, if there's something you're really passionate, commit your your time to proving science. I I think in this case, I don't really see how rain and fossil fuels, like, relate. Um, I just – I actually just Googled it because I was incredibly confused. And all I'm getting back from a Google search of fossil fuels impacts on rain is – that they release large amounts of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the air. We we know that. That doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it's going to rain more. Yeah. You know, in some instances, it's more intuitive to think that maybe it would rain less because of how hot it was. Mm-hmm. So a little confused on the logic. But then again, I always am when it comes to this. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, climate, it it's a whole, obviously, massive issue that people feel so passionate about. There is a lot of emotion behind the climate change arguments. And when when we're talking about fossil fuels, we're talking about things like coal, oil, Mm -hmm. natural gas. These are substances that are found naturally in the earth. Uh, They're on like the the earth layer of the earth around, uh, you know, after things like from plants and animals dying. Uh, And we use them, of course, to power our cars and electricity and power machinery. Mm -hmm. So I recently went back and listened to a podcast interview on the issue of fossil fuels that Heritage Foundation President Dr. Kevin Roberts did with energy and climate expert Alex Epstein. And what Alex talked about was so much of the conversation that we have around fossil fuels, we're coming at it from this very narrow perspective that are talking points that the left that the media have pushed and the automatic place people start from in this conversation is fossil fuels bad fossil fuels must be stopped use of them at all costs Mm -hmm. and that the use of them is always negative and what alex really breaks down is well yeah we can look at some negative consequences from fossil fuels the benefits of fossil fuels far outweigh the negatives. It, yeah. It's a choice. It, it's it's a it's a pros and cons. It's looking uh, at both sides. And through Alex's research, what he's really seen is fossil fuels are so important for ending poverty and mm-hmm. the areas that uh, struggle financially. You know, they <laughs> areas that are already really hurting and impoverished. 
it's a luxury to rely on things like solar. It's a luxury to have things like windmills. Uh, and they do not produce anywhere near the energy and nearly as cheaply as things like natural gas, coal, mm-hmm. and oil. So if you want to actually raise the standard of living, not just in America, but literally across the world, fossil fuels is an effective way to do that. And he said even some of the negative consequences that we see from fossil fuels Fossil fuels themselves can help to mitigate by powering and creating energy. Uh, so it is it was just really fat. We'll leave a link in the show notes to that episode if you all want to dive deeper into that. Because I was really fascinated. But he's right. I think we we are so used to hearing the talking points of just fossil fuels bad. We need to stop them. No one talks about the pros yeah. of fossil fuels and the benefits. And the benefits are far reaching, uh, specifically. They're far-reaching for those who are are middle-income and especially for those who are living in poverty. Um, They are powerful for effectively pulling people out of poverty. And, of course, that's just an argument that we don't hear. No, and I think to your point, we talked last week about electric vehicles Mm -hmm. and how they're at the same price point as a luxury vehicle as well. And that's something that we don't talk about enough. I think a lot of people are so excited by the idea of you can put solar panels on your house. Well, how much does that actually cost to mm-hmm. install? And yeah, there's incentives and and tax and cuts and and different things that you can use to, you know, make that upper upper class buy into your um agenda. But I think what's really funny and ironic and also not spoken about enough is the ways that we make these, you know, renewable energy sources. And Mm. it utilizes a lot of fossil fuels. For instance, um, Sweden has this huge, um, like, wind farm. And in the winter, Sweden obviously gets cold. And we've seen it in Texas. Windmills have shut down because of how cold it has gotten there in recent years. But they use fossil fuels and um, nuclear energy in Sweden to make sure that those windmills are, you know, warm and don't stop moving. (laughs) So I think that... You know, the common argument to that would be, well, it takes maybe less fossil fuels if we, you know, have diversification in our energy sources. Mm -hmm. Sure. okay, But there is a level of unpredictability. And at the end of the day, if it's going to take, you know, two hours for me to charge my car and I'm trying to drive cross country to visit my parents in Georgia, like that's not feasible for me. Mm -hmm. My time's worth more than that. I don't want to, you know, sit there waiting for it to charge. I also don't like the unpredictable nature of some of these vehicles. And granted, love science. I majored in biology and economics in college, so I love it. But you can't force someone to trust your science and what you believe matters. That's like the beauty of our country. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm looking at Tesla's, they've caught on fire. They haven't worked in the cold. Like there are plenty of issues that have led me to buy a Jeep over a Tesla. (laughs) Granted, it shuts off when I'm not moving at a red light. So it's kind of a hybrid. So I'm (laughs) doing my best, guys. But there is that, you know, personal preference. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's looking at the whole picture and not just buying into one set of talking points is really critical. But stay with us because up next, we are going to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct. 
designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Kate Middleton. Yeah, we're, we're sticking to the European trend over here. We're just riding that European wave yeah, today. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, obviously, Kate Middleton, also known as the Duchess of Cambridge, is not only a fashion icon that I think we can rally behind, but also a problematic woman because of her unwavering commitment to her royal duties. As a member of the British royal family, Kate is responsible. Can I call her Kate? I don't yeah. even know if I can. I think you can. I think yeah. you can call her Kate. She's she's our friend. Call me Kate. <laughs> um, she would tell us to call her Kate, I'm yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure. sure. Yes. Uh, well, she is responsible for raising awareness around a variety of charitable causes, including early childhood development and mental health. I think that's really, really cool. And honestly, what made me want to make her Problematic Women of the Week Mm -hmm. um, is that she really doesn't take a political stand on anything. She's a unifier of her country, which is so necessary, Mm -hmm. and especially in this political environment. She's done this even as royal commentators pick and prod at her royal family. You know, there's been a lot of drama with Meghan Markle Mm -hmm. and Prince Harry. She has just continued to remain resilient in the public eye and compassionate towards others and just beautiful woman fashion icon. You had some really fun stuff <laughs> that you shared with me yesterday. Well, I think I I do appreciate uh, Kate Middleton's fashion quite a lot. Aspire to it. I have to remind myself sometimes like, okay, she has um, she has a budget that's probably a little a larger. A royal budget. A royal budget that's a little larger than mine. I'm pretty sure she probably has a multiple personal stylist, not just one. So I uh, can't quite compare you know, my uh, TJ Maxx budget to Love her <laughs> her budget with shopping, but I, I do... I I do love um, to look at and get inspiration fashion-wise from her. But one of the things I, I recently learned about Kate Middleton is they, you know, if you'll notice, you hardly ever see a negative um, or an unattractive photo of her. And I'm sure part of that is that the press does love her and, you know, they want to put out photos that look good of her. Uh, But one of the things that she does is she always keeps her chin parallel to the ground. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you do that, you know, it's just a lot more likely that you'll always take photos that are flattering. Which, if you actually think about it in your day-to-day life, that's really hard to, like, just constantly keep your chin parallel. Like, we naturally go up or down or sideways or... Uh, I've tried it a tiny bit and like, this is uncomfortable. And then I forget and move on. <laughs> I don't, I don't have paparazzi taking pictures of me, so I'm not too worried about good. it. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think with Kate Middleton, it, I'm sure I have no doubt she's a human. I'm sure she has lots of thoughts about Meghan Markle mm-hmm. and Prince Harry and strong opinions as she should and is entitled to have. But I do think it's impressive that she has not, sought out dragging anyone through the mud mm-hmm. or um you know being a, a gossip and i think that's been nice to see that despite all of the drama that the royal family continually creates she is a woman who just moves forward in fulfilling her duties and keeping up truly what the people in britain expect from their duchess which mm-hmm. is an air of elegance and representing your country and national pride um so 
Good job. Yeah. Good job. Good Kate. job, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that seems like a good, a good place to leave it today. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us today on this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So, hey, pull out your phone or get your laptop up. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, wherever you like to listen. Leave us a review. We really love hearing your feedback. And also, every time you leave a review, that helps to spread the word to other listeners. It gets the show more attention. And so we truly appreciate everyone who's left reviews and thank you in advance. If you plan on, on leaving one, we truly appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, have a great week, guys. Send us your book recommendations. Yes. Check out the Instagram account for the story and leave your recommendations. Yeah. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.